0: in Gresham, Oregon, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Gresham, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Gresham. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am James Orr and today we have a really crazy cool class this is the class where we talk about the classic discussion the classic question of is it better to put 20% down or to put 25% down when buying rental properties should I put 20% down should I put 25% down Hey, I know that if I do 25% down, it's going to take me longer to save up that amount of down payment. So I'm going to be a little bit slower acquiring properties. But, you know, putting 25% down, I do get a little bit of a bump to my interest rate. I do get a little bit better interest rate. And I'm borrowing less. So my overall cash flow will be better. But, you know, does that really matter? How much does it matter? Is it going to be better for me to do 20% or 25%? That's what we're going to discuss in today's class. So let's jump right in. So what I did is, uh, this is part of a new series I'm doing where I kind of compare these classic questions, these classic dilemmas of, should I do this or should I do that? The the one we've done before this was, should I put 5% down as a nomad, buy a property, move in, live there for a year, and then convert it to a rental, put much less down, or should I forego that model? and actually put 20% down. I think it's what I did the last class. And so we're going to go through a whole series of these of, should I do this or should I do that? And how much better is it? How much worse is it? Is it universally better? Is it better in all of the different cities that we model? Or is it only better in some cities? And is it just marginally better? Or is it like ridiculously better that you would be dumb to do the other strategy? So we're going to go over all that. So what I've basically been doing is this. I, um, I brought this real estate financial planner software, and it allows me to go and do these financial modeling where we can go ahead and say, you know, you could basically set up a program to run an investment strategy. So, for example, we can set up a program that says, hey, this is how much money I make. This is how much I'm saving. This is how much I would need to be considered financially independent. Um, this is what properties look like in my marketplace. And they kind of go up in value over time. And interest rates may change or may not change. There's all sorts of variables to be put in there. But you know, we're saving this amount of money. Buy a property every time I save up a certain amount for down payment, plus some reserves, you know, plus some closing costs. And then as soon as I get enough to buy the next property, go ahead and buy that. And let me know when I reach financial independence. And let me know what my net worth is. And let me know all these different measures of risk so I can find out if a strategy is riskier than not so I went and I do this I can I can create these kind of models for any given set of assumptions and so what I did is I created a list of 300 U.S. cities the the most populous 300 U.S. cities and I put in their kind of like median home price and and kind of rent for what you'd get on that type of property and all their tax rate and their kind of like um Uh, their insurance rate and so all these different assumptions about all these different cities and I also set up so that it says if you're if you're working in a city that has a higher cost of living you probably earn a little bit more which also means that you need to replace a little bit higher income in order to be considered financially independent so even though you may make more in a certain city you actually have to overcome that as a hurdle to be considered financially independent in that city as well and so I did these models in 300 cities for somebody who is buying 20% down rentals and someone who's buying 25% down rentals. And so now we can kind of compare the aggregate data of all these and see universally or certain markets if it's better to put 20% down or 25% down. So that's what we're doing here. So this is what we're comparing. In both scenarios, whether you put 20% down or 25% down, I've assumed in this particular set of assumptions that you are not buying an owner-occupant property first. You are starting as a renter and you are remaining as a renter yourself for the entire duration. There is a class coming where I go and I show you what happens if you buy an owner-occupant property first, because there are some super interesting things that happen when you do buy an owner-occupant property first. For example, you eventually pay off that property and the, the kind of thresholds you need in order to be considered financially independent drops because you no longer need to have that much money in order to support a mortgage on the property you're living in. So how much you need in order to be considered financially independent could go down. You know, if you you needed $10,000 a month to be financially independent to support a $2,000 a month mortgage or $3,000 a month mortgage, and if that mortgage gets paid off and you no longer have the principal and interest part of that payment, you may have taxes and insurance and all that other stuff, but the principal and interest part of it drops by $2,000, well, you don't need $10,000 a month to be living on anymore. You really only need like $8,000 or $7,000, depending if it was a $2,000 a month mortgage or a $3,000 a month mortgage. And so it becomes interesting because at some point when you buy a house to live in, if it gets paid off, that your actual kind of like target in order to be financially independent drops. But we're not talking about that today. A little little kind of teaser for another class. In this class, we are talking about analyzing whether you put 20% down or 25% down and you are remaining a renter the entire time. So your rent just keeps going up with inflation, just like the rents on the properties you're buying as an investor, okay? And then you're remaining this renter the whole time, but you buy rental property when you've saved enough for your down payment, plus your closing costs, plus six months of reserves for your personal expenses, and six months of reserves on all of the properties that you own up to that point, including the one you're buying. And additionally, you need to qualify for that loan based on a 45% debt-to-income ratio. So if you're buying properties that have negative cash flow, then that could hurt you moving forward of trying to qualify for the next property. You need to wait for the rent to kind of creep up enough for you to actually get a good debt-to-income ratio where buying the next property is acceptable, which is the reality, right? I mean, if you're buying negative cash flow properties and you go to the lender and you say, I want to get a loan, they'll be like, hey, you don't qualify. Your debt-to-income ratio is out of whack. So we do take that into account when we do our modeling, and it does come into play when we have some of these markets where yeah. cash flow is really, really hard. And I'll also point out, kind of jump to, to head to a slide I'm going to talk about a little bit, we are not optimizing for cash flow. You'll notice throughout the classes I've been teaching recently, we've been really focused on all the different ways, the 88 different strategies that we have for improving cash flow on properties. Because right now in our marketplace, prices are up, interest rates are up a lot, and rents are lagging. So, cash flow on properties is really hard in a lot of markets. And so, we've been talking about all the different ways that we can go and improve cash flow. Well, I didn't do any optimization for this. This is sort of like me taking kind of a middle of the road, median sort of price property. And in a lot of markets, you're probably not buying median. You're probably going to buy a little bit below median. And I'm also just taking what a typical rent would look like in a property, not optimizing in any way. Okay. So, with that being said, you buy the property when you have the down payment plus closing costs plus six months of reserves for personal expenses and six months of reserves for all the rental properties you bought up to that point. And you can qualify for the loan based on a 45% DTI, debt to income ratio. And we're going to buy up to 10 properties in total. So you'll have up to 10 rentals. Sometimes you, you don't get there. You don't quite buy 10, right? Most of the time you get very close. But then you also, you're not buying an owner-occupied property living at all. With the 20% down one, you save up until you can buy 20% down non-owner occupant properties. And then you put a renter in the property immediately and you repeat that until you have your 10 rental properties total based on your qualifications and your ability to save for your down payment based on that. For 25% down, same thing. You save it up until you buy 25% down non-owner occupant properties. You put a renter in the property and you repeat that until you have 10 rental properties with that one. Now realize, as I mentioned at the beginning, Putting 25% down gives you a slightly better interest rate. And because you're putting more down, it means you're borrowing less, which means your payment is lower. When you borrow less money, your payment is lower. And because interest rates are lower, it's doubly lower. Not exactly 2X, but it's lower for two reasons. It's lower because your interest rate is lower and it's lower because you're borrowing less, okay? But it means slower acquisition because at least in the beginning, because it takes you longer to save up a 25% down payment than it takes for you to save up a 20% down payment. So it's a little slower to acquire the properties, but with improved cash flow, your savings rate increases. So eventually it might be faster to buy those next properties because you have so much better cash flow. Super interesting. This is like the challenge, right? Like, what's gonna be better when you do this? If you want to actually dive into my analysis, I put the URL here on the screen. I will uh, try to remember to put it in the show notes for uh, publishing this to the podcast and uh, wherever else I publish this. But you can go click on this and actually see the most up-to-date results. Speaking of up-to-date results, I'll, I'll kind of like preview a little bit later in the presentation. But when I go and I do my analysis, I am not an expert on 300 U.S. markets, right? Um, I'm using kind of like the median price and what rents are based on you know, looking up rents online, doing rent comps essentially, and trying to determine what rents would be. But I don't know your market. You know your market and you can go look at my numbers. I, my assumptions are all published. You can go look at my assumptions and say, James, you're a little bit crazy. I mean, you should probably use a little bit better number for this. Go ahead and reach out to me. Send me an email. Tell me, look, we should be using these numbers for this. And 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 to be clear, I don't want like, your once in a lifetime or once in a decade amazing deals that you're able to find after searching for three years with 20 years experience. I don't want, I, what I want is what a typical real estate investor, what an everyday real estate investor in your market could go and achieve. Right. I don't want to have this exceptionally amazing type of deal that we run the numbers where your city always looks amazing because we pick this. Exceptional, unusual, really hard to find, amazing deal. We want to do more reasonable assumptions for doing the comparisons. Now, if you want to go and you know do your own modeling with your particular stuff, you know, go do that. You know, that's up to you. Okay, but for as far as like doing the comparisons, please do reach out to me. I'm open to having you come and say, Hey, James, your numbers are a little bit off here, maybe, and be nice. (laughs) Please be nice. Don't go, James. You're absolutely wrong. You suck. (laughs) Don't do that. Oh man, be nice about it. Okay. So go ahead and reach out. You could do that. And then if the reason why I gave you the link, though, is if we change the numbers and I change them in the database and I rerun everything, then all the numbers will change. And it will change. It'll change it for all of the analysis we do, not just this one, 20% to 25%. We'll rerun all of them and do all the comparisons. Because I've got like, I don't know, 30 different comparisons so far. And I'm, I'm on my way to 100 plus. I have a whole bunch laid out. It's just a matter of time of getting in there and doing the analysis. Okay, but I digress. <laughs> okay, here we go. So how do we determine if somebody is financially independent? When we're doing this modeling, how do you say, hey, this person achieved financial independence at this month? Well, financial independence is really made up of five income sources, and the five income sources need to surpass whatever their target monthly income in retirement is, which i have set to be whatever they were making from their job. So I said, look, if you, have, if you get to make a little bit more, because your market's a little bit more expensive, that just means that we need to replace that little bit more amount in order for you to be considered financially independent in your marketplace. So here are the five different sources of income that count as to whether somebody is financially independent. Number one is net positive cash flow from rental properties. Take all the income from the property, rent and anything else you're getting, minus all the expenses, including vacancy, principal and interest, the taxes, private mortgage insurance, if you have that, regular insurance, maintenance, management, you subtract out all those expenses from the income, what you're left over is your net positive cash flow from rental properties. That counts toward whether or not you're financially independent. If you have enough rental property income net after all these expenses on your properties, if that is net positive over what you were making from your job, you're considered financially independent. We have you stop working and you just continue living based on that. Okay, that's how we do in the modeling. In addition to that net positive cash flow for rental properties, there's another source of income. There's five. I'm going number two. So you could take any money you have left over that is invested in stocks or bonds or loans as a lender, if you're making hard money loans or whatever it is, times whatever your yearly safe withdrawal rate. If you've heard of the, the kind of Trinity study or the 4% rule, we're basically taking any money you have invested outside of your rental properties times whatever your safe withdrawal rate, which we're going to assume to be 4% for all of these. And that gives you a number as well. So if you've got, if you bought your 10 rentals and now your money's sort of accumulating in your account and you get to a million dollars, you'd have about $40,000 per year contributing to you being financially independent, just using like an example. We do the actual math, it doesn't have to get to a million. Like, you know, we'll do it for a hundred dollars, we'll do it for 10,000, we'll do it for 500,000. Any number you have will multiply by your safe withdrawal rate, uh, divide by the number of months in order to find out what your monthly income is, because we calculated monthly, and we'll determine whether or not that contributes to being financially independent. So those two things, net positive cash flow and your invested assets times your safe withdrawal rate, plus these other three sources of passive income, which I did not model here because, we just assume that they're not getting any, uh, but it would be passive income from social security. You can model that. Any passive income from any annuities that you buy, the insurance product where you pay someone and they pay you a, a monthly or yearly stipend or passive income from pensions if you have a pension with your job. So the two that we're primarily focused on are net positive cash flow from rentals and the invested assets, times as your safe withdrawal rate. We're going to ignore for the sake of this particular discussion, pensions, social security, and annuities. All right, so here are my assumptions. Each city modeling Uses their median home prices approximately and estimated rents for those properties. We did not apply any of the 88 strategies for improving cash flow. Um, job income does vary based on the city, so you can afford a property in that market. I didn't want you to go and say, hey, everybody makes $5,000 a month, and then you go try to buy a property in LA and you're like, you never hit the 45% debt to income ratio because you can never qualify for that particular loan. So uh, I've had to vary income based on the city so that you could actually buy properties in that city. Okay. Uh, But we do consider that if you need to make a higher income in order to qualify for properties there, that you also need to overcome that income to be financially independent. So it's sort of offsets in a weird sort of way. Uh, We start with just enough down payment to buy a 5% down owner-occupant property with closing costs. So we assume you start with 7% of the price of properties in your marketplace, which also changes depending on what market you are. This is true even though you're not buying an owner-occupant property, because We're going to do some comparisons later where you do buy one, and I wanted those to be starting at the same ground, like starting at the same level where instead of, you know, if you start today and say, look, you make $0, which I'll probably do as definitely an example, where you're starting from nothing and all you have is a savings rate. And maybe I start with different savings rate. You know, I'm, I'm digressing. Okay. But basically here I'm saying, look, you're not... You're doing it so that you have a certain amount that you could buy an owner-occupant at the start, because eventually I'm going to compare you doing owner-occupant ones and see how much of a difference that makes. And I wanted them to be as close to apples to apples as we possibly could. I also set a $10,000 minimum. So if you happen to be a market where you know 7% of the price of your properties um, it works out to be less than $10,000, I do bump it up to $10,000. I don't even know if we ever hit that. What would need to be the property value in order to, for it to be less than $10,000? It had to be pretty low. It had to be like, you know, sub 150. It's 150 times 7% is like seven grand plus 35. So yeah, it need to be less than 150,000. I don't know if there are any markets where the median is less than 150. I have to look that up. I don't know. See, this is an example. Me not knowing. <laughs> there, there you go, case in point. All right, so interest rates. So for the... um. The non-owner occupant 20% down interest rate that I picked is 7%. And if interest rates change over time, I will go in there, adjust it, and rerun everything for all the cities. And there's no private mortgage insurance because you put at least 20% down. So there's no PMI, but you're putting 20% down and the interest rate for the 20% down loan is 7%. The interest rate for the 25% down loan is 6.75. So it's a 0.25% improvement to get 25% down, and I will tell you, I think that's conservatively low. I think in most cases, the difference between a 20% down loan and a 25% down loan is greater than 0.25%. It's greater than a quarter point of interest rate, okay? But that's what I did. I didn't want to give 25% down too much of an advantage, although maybe I should have. Maybe I should have done what reality was, but there you go. And I used to just model this out for 60 years. because like, you know, 60 years, even if you're 40 years old, you know, that gets you to 100. If you're 20 years old, that gets you to when you're 80. But because some of these took more than 60 years to find out when they became financially independent, I just decided to, to extend everything to be 100 years. And I realized, James, I'm 50 years old. Um, you know, if someone listening, I'm 50 years old. There's no way I'm going to live to be 100 years old. So this this running this 150 years, running it to be when I be 150 doesn't make any sense. I get it. Even if you're 20 years old, running it for 100 years probably doesn't make sense for a lot of you. But I did it for 100 years just so you could see and so you can get a feel. Uh, for a lot of my measurements, I'm doing, uh, I'm picking 40 years in the future as an arbitrary point. You can see all of my assumptions in detail. Just go to planner.com forward slash model, M-O-D-E-L, and you'll be able to see all the different modeling I'm doing and go to a specific city and see the drill down into the assumptions for your city and what you're doing and all the different variations I've done. That's all up there, at least for now. I may change it in the future, but as of right now, it's all open and available to everybody. All right, let's jump into financial independence. So when do they get to the point where all their passive income um, from you know the, the net rent, the net rental income, and also the invested assets I'm safe withdrawal rate. When does that exceed the amount that they were earning from their job? Well, if you put 20% down in in 52 of the 305 cities, you achieve financial independence faster with 20% down. So about one-sixth. Of all the cities I ran, it was faster for you to put 20% down. However, in about two-thirds of the cities, 194 cities out of 305, it was faster for you to be financially independent if you put 25% down. Wait, what? So putting 25% down was actually faster in two-thirds of all the cities we tested than putting 20% down. And in 59 cities, it didn't matter. Didn't make a difference whether you put 20% down or 25% down. In fact, there were 25 cities where you never achieve financial independence, regardless of whether you put 20% down or 25% down in 100 years. Now, you may have a pretty significant net worth at that point, but your income from your real estate and the income coming from that safe withdrawal rate of any other invested assets never exceeded the job income that you had. But you could just go ahead and say, look, I'm going to stop working. I've got you know, $3 million or $5 million or $10 million, whatever it is that you have there. And I'm just going to start depleting that. So you'll end up kind of losing your balance over time in some of those cases. Some of the cases you actually don't, you'd like run out of money. We'll show you those. Okay. So the key here is 194 cities, two thirds of the time, it was better for you from a speed to financial independence perspective, for you to put 25% down. So that's a win in most cases for 25% down. However, what's interesting is it's not universally true. So when you get in arguments with someone online, an online forum about it's always better to put 25% down, it is not. Or if you get in an argument with them, hey, it's always better to put 20% down. No, it is not always better. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. And you gotta go look at your city to find out what the deal is there. Okay. This is the distribution. In some examples, not today. In some examples, this is really an important chart to look at because you can visually see where the majority of the, um, of the kind of cities are becoming financially independent. In this example, they're relatively similar. Yeah, sure. In some cases, the 25% down, there are a few more cities that achieve financial independence earlier. Yeah, that's happening here, but in some cases, it's faster to do 20%, you know, faster to do 20% here, you know, but you can kind of see that they're really relatively similar in shape. We'll find out later that they're not always like this. Sometimes it's like really skewed where one is much slower or one is much faster, but in this case, they're relatively similar. Okay, so what are we doing here? One of the questions we sometimes get is, James, is this a better strategy in more expensive markets or is this a better strategy in cheaper markets? You know, are we talking, is the difference when you do the 20% down versus the 25% down, is it really a situation where you know 20% down works in these really inexpensive markets, but 25% works in more expensive markets or vice versa? And really this chart answers that question. So what this does is it shows you um, how much better 20% down is versus 25% down is, or how much better 25% down is versus 20% down is, depending on the color. So the green ones are ones where it's better for 25% down. You are, you're achieving financial independence faster for all the green ones with 25% down. All the red ones are, it's better to have done 20% down. But I'm plotting all along the bottom here, what the price of the property was at the start, And here I'm showing you how many months difference it was. So you could see that in the $300,000 price range that there are several um, spots where 20% down was better. And there are several where 25% down was better depending on which city you're looking at. You could see that if you kind of just eyeball it really loosely, you can see there are quite a few more greens and greens is where 25% down is faster. There's quite a few more greens toward the lower end of the price but there's also quite a few more when you get higher. So what I would tell you about this is, just visually looking at this, there is a slight tendency for 25% down to work better if you have more expensive properties. Because there's only a few dots, you know, these two dots here where the, where we have more expensive properties and it was better to put 20% down. So in general, there's, in general, there's more green dots than there are red dots because two thirds of the time down is better. And that makes sense. We're seeing a lot more green. But we're also looking at this in terms of like, how does it compare when you look at house price too? And you can see that the green ones tend to be more prevalent with these more expensive houses, okay? Not to say that there aren't a couple outliers, but there are a, a trend, a correlation there. All right. And there's a couple outliers. There's a couple times where, Putting 25% down is way better than putting 20% down. And most of the time, though, it's you know within, what is this here? This is probably about 50 months, so about four years. So most of these are less than four years better. So it's not like you're saying, hey, look, if I do 25% versus 20%, I'm going to gain 10 years faster to financial independence. No, it's not that significant in most cases. We're talking about relatively small numbers, a year or two here. Although you think about this, you know, if I could save you, A year or two of working a job that you hate by helping you get to financial independence faster, that's pretty valuable. That's valuable information, right? Even a year or two or three years. Or in this case, you know, we talked about being four years. I don't know, kind of interesting. All right. So we've talked about speed to financial independence, but speed to financial independence is only one way we can measure whether something is better or not. The other way we can measure if something's better or not is just pure dollars that you have, your net worth at certain periods of time. And so we're going to use net worth at year 40, and we're going to look at the net worth at year 40, is it better, or you have a higher net worth if you put 20% down, or if you put 25% down at year 40, comparing net worth in these 300 US cities. In eight of the cities, it doesn't matter. You end up with the same net worth which is super fascinating because it's hard to be exactly even. Okay? But with eight cities, it doesn't matter. Okay? It is faster, I'm sorry, not faster. It is higher net worth, better. You have more net worth at year 40 in 193 cities, about two out of two out of the about two thirds if you put 25% down. So not only is 25% down faster, but 25% down gives you a higher net worth in about two thirds of the cities. And about one-third of the cities, 104 cities, it is actually a higher net worth to do that, which is crazy. So depending on what city you're in, it's better to put 20% down versus 25% down. Okay? It really depends on what city you're in. So it's not universally true that one is better than the other. But if you had to generalize, typically it's a little bit better to put 25% down. From both a speed perspective, where it's also about two-thirds faster, two-thirds of the cities are faster, and also from a net worth perspective, about two-thirds of the city have a higher net worth at, at month 40, okay? All right, same thing we did before. We talked about the difference in speed. Now we're doing the difference in net worth graphed against how, how, how high the property prices are. So are the more expensive properties performing better in terms of net worth than the less expensive properties. And so in this case, the red is 25% down is better. So in this case, the reds are appearing more frequently at the higher end prices. And so it is slightly better to put 25% down on these higher price properties than it is to put 20% down in terms of net worth. Okay, now down here, I wouldn't say one is better than the other because there's a bunch of each. But up here, it looks like there's only reds, which is, it's better to, it's better from a net worth perspective to have 25% down as you get more expensive in your properties. And that sort of makes sense, right? A lot of the more expensive properties, they tend to have not as good cash flow. You know, they're very expensive and the rents are a little bit lower. And because of that negative cash flow, it's better if you put more down. Because it means you have less negative cash flow, or or slightly positive cash flow, depending on what the exact situation is in that city. And so this sort of makes sense to me that if you put more down, you're likely to do a little bit better in those markets in terms of net worth. All right. All right. Ran out of money. This tends to be in expensive markets, which I'll show you here in a second. And we did not apply any of the ADH strategies to improve cash flow, but in some of these markets, you end up having so much negative cash flow that you end up running out of money. You're buying properties that are alligators, and they're taking you down. And so we could fix this if we were to go in there and manually say, okay, look, we're not going to buy this property unless it has these characteristics. I'll buy slightly better properties. I'll improve my cash flow in all these different ways. I'll save up more down payment. I'll save up more in reserves. And we could overcome this, but realize that with the modeling we did, there were 11 cities that ran out of money out of 305. 11 out of 305. In 294 cities, it didn't matter. Both, they, they and neither, none of those ran out of money, but in 11 of the 305, you did run out of money. Even with six months of personal reserves, six months of reserves for the property on all properties before you buy the next one, okay? So there are things we could do to avoid that. We talk about those in other classes. So as far as which ones run out of money, it tends to be the more expensive properties. The overwhelming of things under a million dollars. In fact, I can't see any under a million dollars where it ran out of money. This really started applying when she got to about one point two five million or so, and then all the way up to the really, really expensive properties where you have there. So, if you happen to be in a really, really expensive market, we need to really pay attention to your cash flow. Really need to improve that um, to optimize for that and take it take into account the negative cash flow you're going to have on those. Pick strategies that overcome that limitation. Okay. All right. So let's do a summary here. I've got two different versions of this slide. In one version of the slide, I'm taking the average. So I, I say, you no, know, take the net worth at year 40 and take the average of all of the net worths of all 305 cities. So add them all up, divide by the number that I've got, and that gives you an average. But in other ones, I'm, another slide, I'm doing the median. So I'm taking all the net worths, I'm stacking them from lowest to highest, and I'm looking for the middle most net worth. That's what median is, okay? Versus average where you add up all of them, and then you divide by the number that you've got and you've got an average. So I'm going to first start with median and then I'll go to the averages and we'll kind of like we'll do the median a little slower and averages we'll kind of just kind of summarize very quickly. All right, so median. At 40 years, the median net worth when you put 25% down is about $7.3 million. Of all the cities, that's the middlemost number. But if you put only 20% down, the median net worth is only about $6.9 million in change. So it's a difference of about $330,000 or a difference of about 4.7%. Now, honestly, that's not that big of a difference to me. You know, a 5% difference, yeah, there is a difference, but we're talking about, you know, a $330,000 difference on a $7 million net worth. Not super significant to me. So while 25% is better, it's not like crazy two times better or anything like that, right? It's marginally better if you think about it. And as an aside, we're talking about the net worth 40 years in the future. So the rule of thumb is, if you look at net worth 40 years in the future, we're really about a third of that in today's dollars. So a $7 million net worth is probably in that $2.3 million net worth today. That's what it would be worth in today's dollars. That's the rule of thumb. It's about one third. Okay, so net worth a little bit better. Um, Of the ones that ran out of money, the overwhelming majority of of ones didn't run out of money. And so that's basically the same for median. No difference there. Each of them bought 10 properties on median. So the middlemost one bought 10 properties. um, So there's no real change there. And as far as how long it took them to be financially independent, the minimum target monthly income and retirement achieved month, MTMIR, that's what MTMIR stands for. uh, When we achieve that, it's a little bit faster for the 25%. It's two years faster when you look at the median. So what's two years of your life working a job that you don't want to work worth to you? Well, it's two years faster to put 25% down, which is about 4.1% faster. Again, not a huge difference from a percentage perspective, but if you don't have to work a job you hate for two years, that could be great. Now, if you love your job, maybe it's not a big deal. Right? If you're like, hey, I love what I do, I would do it even if I didn't get paid. Awesome. But if you don't like your job, two years can seem like a very long time. So there you go. All right. So those are kind of like the uh, the metrics that we've got. They're, so really 25% down is slightly better. You know, it was 4%, 4.7% better in terms of net worth and 4% better in terms of uh, faster speeds of retirement to being financially independent. But let's look at risk. Okay, so there's I don't know however many there are there's six different measures of risk that we've got on here. One is rent resiliency, how far rents can drop before you would have negative cash flow. And if you're putting more down, you would think that that would make you less risky because your monthly payment is lower, so your rents could drop more before you'd actually have negative cash flow. So by putting twenty five percent down, it should be less risky. And it is. It's about 10%, 9.7% less risky over the entire 100-year period. This is not a snapshot in time. This measures risk over the entire period that you ran it. Okay, And there are other scenarios, not necessarily today, but there are other scenarios where the risk actually shifts. So it could be really, really risky early on and much less risky later on or vice versa. It could be really, really low risk early on and much, much riskier later, or it could be sort of an even distribution of risk, which is pretty rare. We usually has spikes in there whenever you kind of increase certain things, but each, each risk curve is different. And it's, it's interesting to summarize them, but it's more important sometimes to actually drill down and see what's going on on an individual city basis. Okay. So we talked about rent resiliency, how far rents can drop before you'd have negative cash flow. What about price resiliency? How far prices can decline before you have negative equity? In other words, how much equity cushion do you have in your properties? And if you put more down, if you put 25% down, you would expect it to be less risky, which is true. So we have a 70% price resiliency on average for the 25% down versus 68 for the 20% down or about a a 2.9% difference. Again, that's not that big of a difference to me. That's almost the same right? But 25% down is slightly less risky. What about debt to income? You know what your lender calculates a debt to income calculation to figure out what your debt to income ratio is before they give you a loan to buy a property. Well, we measure this every single month on all the properties that you currently own so that we can see what your debt to income ratio is on a 100 year term. And it turns out your debt to income ratio is better. It's lower for putting 25% down. You put more down you have lower monthly payments for the amount of money you've got coming in, which is pretty much the same because you're buying the same properties. So your lower debt to income ratio means it's less risky for you to put 25% down. It's about 70, I'm sorry, it's about 15% better for you to put 25% down. That's starting to become significant for me. That's an improvement. It's less risky from a debt to income perspective to put 25% down. What about if we took your debt load how much debt you had in total Add up all the mortgages you have in this case. And we divide that through by what your total net worth is. We wanted to find out what the ratio of all the debt you're carrying is to your net worth. If I told you I have $5 million in debt, does that scare you? $5 million in debt. I owe $5 million. Does that scare you? Well, if I make you know, $50,000 a year And I have $5 million in debt. That probably would scare a lot of people. If I make $5 million a year. And I have $5 million in debt. That probably would scare you less. If I make $100 million a year. And I have $5 million in debt. That probably wouldn't scare you as much. Similarly. If I tell you I have $5 million in debt. And my net worth is zero. Because I have no other assets. That might scare you. If I tell you I have $5 million in debt. And I have a $5 million net worth really, that's much lower. That's much more conservative. What if I told you I had a hundred million dollar net worth and I have $5 million in debt? You'd be like, that's fine. You could go ahead and take your, some of your assets and pay that off really easily. And so we want to look at your debt compared to what your net worth is to see what that ratio is. When you put 25% down, that ratio is improved. It's better. And so it's lower. You have a 32% debt to net worth ratio, which is about eight point six, better than the thirty five percent you have when you put twenty percent down. So it's less risky. Put twenty five percent down. What about your debt to your liquid net worth, or what we call debt to account balance? Sure, your net worth consists of the equity you have in your properties plus any money you have invested somewhere in stocks or bonds or savings or whatever it is there. But what if we say let's ignore equity because equity is really hard to get at sometimes? So let's just look at what your Debt is compared to your liquid net worth. How liquid you are compared to that debt. Well, we can measure that debt to account balance, and it turns out that, oddly enough, twenty percent down is slightly better there. Twenty percent down is slightly less risky, and it's about twelve percent better. That's interesting, right? And then, how many months of reserves do we have on average? Ideally, we want to have at least six months of reserves. But wouldn't it be better to say I have twelve months of reserve somewhere? Wouldn't it be better to say I have 24 months, I have two years worth of reserves, where I have enough reserves where if I didn't get rent for two years, I would be fine? Sure, I think that's more conservative. Well, the average number of months of reserves in in these models is 676, which tends to be skewed by the really, really high numbers you have much later on in the modeling. And early on, you barely have that six months because that's the criteria for buying properties for a lot of cities, okay? But it's about 8.7% better putting 25% down when we look at that measure of risk. So to summarize, all the green areas here are ones where 25% down is better. So it's better in net worth. It's better in faster speed to financial independence. It's better in at least five of the six measures of risk. And with some of these, they're relatively small differences. And some of these are starting to become a little bit more significant in terms of what percentage difference they are between putting 20% down. OK, so that's all the medians looking at the middlemost one for doing that. OK, what about average? Well, with average, it's even more extreme. Not necessarily in a percentage, although in some cases it is. But with this, it's better to put 25% down universally when we look at the average for all the different cities. OK, it's 0.7% better from a net worth, perspe- net worth perspective to put 25% down. It's 2.2% better from a speed to financial independence perspective put 25% down. And then, you know, it's much better for you to put, you know, in the 10% range plus for several of these measures of risk when you're considering putting 25 or 20% down. So in general, it seems like 25% down is a little bit better. Not like all better. And it really matters which city you're in, honestly. Okay. Now remember, I've said this a couple of times, you could apply The 88 strategies we have to improve cash flow to improve on these numbers. These are sort of like middle of the road numbers. We're basically using the median price property in the market and the rent we might be able to get on that property in that market. You could choose a better property and you probably would do better. And I do model some of these improvements. Like there are examples where I model and say, what if you could buy a property and get a 5% better price or 10% better rents or 10% better price? or you get slightly better interest rates, or you buy down the interest rate. Like I'll do all these different models and I'll compare them so that you can see what impact that has, okay? Now, again, this is my call to action for you. If you're an expert at your local market, I am not an expert at your local market. And if you wanna help me improve my numbers for the local market, reach out via email and I can update the numbers in our database to rerun all the scenarios to your market and we can improve this so that everybody gets the benefit of being able to see how this compares. Now, I'm not trying to show best case that only a small number of real estate investors could expect to achieve. I really want to use numbers that any real estate investor in your market could expect to achieve, okay? All right. Now, something interesting that comes up to some people here, and kudos for you, a little plus for you, if this applied to you. So you're realizing that, look, we're buying these non-owner occupant properties. We're not moving into these properties, right? So we're buying investment properties. What if you live in a market where your market conditions suck? You know, the, the economics of you buying rental properties in your market are just not ideal. Could you go and say, I live in blank city, but I will go invest in another city where the economics are much better? Sure, you totally could do that. And there's no local market limitation because we're not even buying an owner-occupant property in this particular case. But you could go say, hey, I'm going to live in X city and buy in Y city. And I did not model it that way. So you could do a lot better than what I'm showing if you just picked a different city that had better economics. All right, so that's it. In our current market conditions, our current price, current interest rates, our current rents, um, as of March 22nd, 2023, that's when I'm recording this. So if you're wondering like, where was this? When was this that was happening? In, two, in, in 300 plus US markets using less than ideal median price rent properties, putting 25% down is better in terms of net worth, and speed to financial independence in general, but there are exceptions. The market does matter. In some markets, 20% down is faster, more profitable, and arguably better, which is why it's so hard to have this conversation. Generally though, putting 25% down is less risky. There are probably exceptions to that too though. It's best if you look closer at your specific market and apply as many of the 88 cash flow improving strategies as practically possible to improve on your implementation. And if you go to the real estate financial forward slash model, you'll be able to go ahead and see your city and the comparisons for your city and all that stuff. All right. That's all I got. This has been James Orr. I hope you enjoyed this. Hope you enjoy these kind of like uh, the theme of kind of comparing these, because I'm going to do more of them, unless you tell me I hate them. Um, but I'm going to do more of them because I find it fascinating to see, hey, should I prepay PMI or should I not pay PMI or should I um, you know, hire a property manager? What's the impact of hiring a property manager? If I'm going to put 25% down, what is it? what's the difference in speed if I hire a property manager versus not hiring a property manager? Or what is the difference in speed if I decide to pay off my properties early? If I take extra cash flow and I use it to pay off that, what happens if I – Take my money and I save it up until I can pay off a property in full. Is that faster? Should I buy 10 properties, wait till I get to the point where all of the equity in those can pay off four of the 10 and I sell off six of them to pay off the four? Is that faster? So I'll do all of these comparisons and I'll show you which one's better, by how much, and what how that changes risk characteristics too. But as you can see, it takes a little while to go through the details of each one. So there's going to be about one a week, is my plan as of right now, subject to change. That's all I got for you. Hope you enjoyed it. This has been James Orr. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Gresham is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rental. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Gresham that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.